Welcome WTOB listeners. This is For the Record with Greenwood Law. I am Harold Eustache along with Dylan Greenwood and we're here today in our second part of our DWI series where we're going to be talking about uh, probable cause and all the things that happened that happened after uh, a person is stopped and a DWI investigation begins. So last time we talked about reasonable suspicion and all and all that that entails and now we're on to the point where a stop has occurred and an officer begins to investigate a DWI and where the snowball goes from there. Yeah, and at that point, literally every interaction with that you have with that officer is going to be scrutinized. From the words that you say, the way that you look, the way that you smell, uh, oftentimes an officer is going to ask you to step out of the vehicle. The way in which you do that uh, is going to be scrutinized. Do you do it smoothly? Do you do it in a manner in which um, you know, somebody sober, you would think that they would do it, or are you stumbling out of the car? Are you having to fool around with the handle of the car? Uh, you know, there's any number of factors that play into it. Can you get your license out properly? All of that stuff. Right. Does it take you a while? Um, do you not know where something is, or, you know, you're trying to swat at something, and or um, I've even seen videos of people that are just like laughing uncontrollably mm -hmm. or something's going on and um, all of that gets uh, put into a determination for probable cause. Now that's not all uh, that gets looked at. In fact, uh, that's not even the majority of what gets looked at. Those are all factors that play into it, uh, but it gets looked at in its totality just like reasonable suspicion does. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times, those initial things, when an officer goes up to a vehicle, like, like Dylan was talking about, and they, they're assessing whether a person smells like alcohol, if they were in the area of a bar, if their eyes are red and glassy, um, you know, is their speech slurred, are they able to give their license? And at that point, an officer is thinking, is, is maybe initiating an investigation, and that's when they may ask somebody to get out of a vehicle, um, to get out of their vehicle and begin um, a series of what we call standardized field sobriety tests. Um, and so can you explain what a standardized field sobriety test is? So a standardized field sobriety test uh, is a test that um, in the name it's been standardized so that means it's been studied. There is um, data to suggest that that test is reliable in determining a level of impairment based off of the way that test is administered and somebody's performance on that test. These are tests that are put out by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. So colloquially, we refer to it as NHTSA. Uh, it's the NHTSA tests that they come out with. And the main ones are the one leg stand test, the walk and turn test, and the HGN test, which stands for Horizontal Gaze Nystagmus Test. And all of those, uh, if they are administered correctly, if they are administered in a standardized way, then they can be used to determine probable cause. The reason why an officer is looking at determining or gathering these pieces of information for a determination on probable cause is because probable cause is what is needed for a couple of things. One, it's needed if there's going to be a warrantless search of a person or a car or a place. It is also used to determine whether or not an arrest should occur. 
And that is very important in the state of North Carolina because we're, are, we are an implied consent state. So after a seizure or an arrest, based off that probable cause, when an officer takes uh, an individual to the magistrate's office, the jail, or the police station, oftentimes they ask them to uh, subject themselves to a uh, blood or breath test. And in North Carolina, by you driving out on the road, you have impliedly given your consent for those tests. You can refuse to do them, but you get uh, significant repercussions. And we've talked about that before on a prior DWI segment, but you can lose your license for uh, up to a year and not be able to drive for that long. Um, but it, that's a big difference between a portable test that is done on the side of the road. And we'll get into all of that, but you know, it's just important to understand what probable cause is. And the legal definition for probable cause is a reasonable ground of suspicion supported by circumstances that are sufficiently strong in themselves to warrant a cautious man in believing that the accused to be guilty of some sort of criminal activity. And to establish that probable cause, the evidence need not amount to proof of guilt. So it doesn't have to be beyond reasonable doubt at all. Um, that's not how it works, but it must be such that would that a reasonable man acting in good faith would believe that a criminal activity had occurred. Right. And so I know we, that there was a lot we said there, and you know, our listeners might be thinking, well, you know, we, we defined reasonable suspicion in the last segment, and now we're talking about this legal definition of probable cause. One, one way we sort of think about it in the legal community is sort of reasonable suspicion is, is here. It's a low level. Low, lower level bars for an officer to, in, to interact with someone, and then probable cause is a little bit higher level of a bar for someone, for them to arrest someone, and then to be proven guilty, yeah, it's beyond a reasonable doubt. Is, it, so, is the big hurdle. Right, so the, that's the way that, that folks should think about that. Right, and you know, you're, you're looking at these tests, they're making determinations. Uh, a lot of times, you know, like we said, officer pulls you over, they're immediately looking at how you smell. They're immediately looking at uh, how you talk. They're immediately looking at, literally looking at what your eyes look like. Uh, they're asking you to step out of the car. They're making an initial assessment on your balance. Did they get out of the car okay? Were they able to give me their license okay? And then a lot of times they're going to ask you to do the standardized field sobriety test that uh, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration has come out with. So um, there are a lot of, they don't have to be done in a certain order, right. uh, uh, but most commonly uh, they start um, with uh, a walk and turn test. And so Harold, what exactly is a walk and turn test? Walk and turn test is one of these standardized field sobriety tests. Um, it is what's called a divided attention test in that it has two phases to it. Uh, the first phase of the walk and turn test is an instructional phase, and the second phase is a performance phase. So during the instructional phase, an officer is going to ask a person to uh, stand with their heel to toe, stand still with their arms by their side looking forward um, with their heel, heel to toe together. And while they're standing in that position, the officer is gonna give them instructions on how to perform the walk and turn test. Now, a person taking that test may just be thinking, well, you know, I'm just standing here listening to this officer 
give me instructions. But that's actually part of the test. Um, so uh, the, the reasoning behind that is that uh, if the person is unsteady on their feet or is unable to keep that position or begins to start the test for some reason, um, that is uh, a sign of impairment according to the National Highway Traffic and Safety Administration. So there's that first part of the test that's instructional. And then a lot of times the officers will say, don't start until I tell you to, don't start until I tell you to. They instruct a person to take uh, nine heel to toe steps. And one of the big indications of impairment down. is if they do start early. Right, if they do start and, early, and that we is see a one lot of, the of Yeah, we see a lot of people that say, no, 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 I know how to do this. Mm -hmm. I'll go ahead and start. And yeah, that's right. just, let's say you have done it before. Um, your ability to comply with what that officer exactly. is telling you at that moment yep. in time is, again, being scrutinized every step of the way. Right. And so when that officer um, begins that test, he is supposed to, he or she is supposed to make sure that it, there's a flat level surface, that, um, that the person that's taking the test has, you know, is reasonably comfortable and has shoes on that, that can um, so do no, the test. No six inch stiletto heels. No six inch heels. That's what I normally wear, but. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but um, also, uh, you know, needs to make sure the person doesn't have any medical issues that may preclude them from taking that test. And once all that's out the way, the officer will demonstrate um, how the person needs to take these nine heel to toe steps. Um, uh, and then once they get to the, uh, counting each step, once they get to the ninth step, take a series of small steps to, to turn around 180 degrees and then take nine heel to toe steps back, counting each step. And so what the officer is looking at during that performance phase is what's called clues. And so for the walk and turn test, there are eight clues that are possible um, for an officer to, to observe that would um, give them give them signs of impairment according to and the National Highway Traffic and Safety Administration. And the National Highway Traffic and Safety Administration says if you just uh, exhibit two of the clues, then research would indicate that your BAC is either at a .08 or greater, and they're saying that that is with 79% accuracy. So like 79% of the time, every time. Correct, yeah, <laughs> all the time. And so those eight clues, uh, one of them would, you know, we start, uh, said before, starting too soon. Right. Uh, stopping while walking, it's supposed to be a continuous nine steps out, a turn, and a continuous nine steps back on that imaginary line. Third one would be uh, missing that heel to toe. So if there's space between the heel and the toe, that misses, uh, or that's a, a clue. If you step off the line, so you can't stay on that imaginary line, Big no-no. Um, using your arms to balance, that's a biggie. You can't have your arms straight out like you're shaped like a T. Uh, that doesn't work. You have to have your arms down by your sides. Um, an improper turn, that's actually where a lot of people mess up. Yeah. They'll pivot on one foot and just turn right around thinking that they're demonstrating this more advanced maneuver, if you will, because they've been able to stay on one foot. But no, that's not what the test was asked for because, uh, again, part of it is divided attention. They want to make sure that you can follow instructions and then do the instructions as they asked because they demonstrate the heel-to-toe steps. The law enforcement officer demonstrates the turn that they want you to do. 
So paying attention and doing it how they asked is a big part of the, of the test. And then uh, incorrect number of steps. We've seen, um, we've seen people oh, yeah. walk for yeah. 20, 30 steps before and just route counting. We, yeah. had, we had one case where a guy walked in a star pattern um, and couldn't go heel to toe back up and back just a straight line. It was just all mm -hmm. over the place. And then the eighth one is that they c cannot keep balance uh, during the instructions. So of those eight clues, if you exhibit just two of them, then all of a sudden uh, they're saying that that exhibits impairment. And, and, it, and important to remember that a lot of times if you are participating in this test, um, a lot of times an officer may have a body cam or dash cam. These tests are being recorded um, and they are, you know, that, that recording, the visual representation of what you're doing is, is, is used in court quite a bit. Um, when we're challenging um, probable cause, so it's important to remember that. Um, there's also another standardized field sobriety test called the one-leg stand test. Dylan, can you explain yeah, that? Yeah, so the one-leg stand test is, again, a lot of these tests are pretty self-explanatory. You stand on one leg, uh, but there's a certain way you have to do it. And kind of like the mm -hmm. walk and turn test, uh, an officer is looking to see whether or not you can follow instructions and then perform the instructions as asked. And so uh, a person that's under investigation for uh, DWI, when they're asked to do one leg, leg stand test, they're supposed to stand straight with their feet together and their arms by their side. And they're st you're supposed to stay there until you're instructed to start. Again, like right. the, w the walk and turn, we see a lot of people that just like, okay, you want me to stand on one leg? Let me show you what I can do. And it's, you know, I guess the thought process is, is that you're, you're an overachiever, but really you're exhibiting one of the potential clues. Uh, and then uh, an officer then tells that person uh, to raise a leg of their choice six inches off the ground with their toe pointed forward and their foot parallel to the ground for 30 seconds. So it's not just that you're standing on one leg and you know, it's pretty easy to stand on one leg when you can kind of curl it under you to help with your balance. That's what these NHTSA tests have been developed to show is your ability to actually balance. And so when you're having to stand with that leg out in front of you with the foot parallel to the ground, it's more of an indication of your ability to actually balance um, pursuant to possible impairment uh, than any other type. Mm -hmm. And so they're looking for uh, four of these clues. The first one being, did you use your arms to balance? You can't do that. Mm -hmm. Can't use your arms. They gotta stay by your side. Did you sway? Uh, did you hop? Uh, and then was your foot put down before 30 seconds? And then along the way, you're supposed to count one 1,000, two 1,000, three 1,000. And officers will even uh, mention that even though it's not a, a specific clue, just the inability to follow along with instructions and not count in the correct way, um, that will be discussed quite a bit. And so and it's important to remember too that even though there are, again, there are these clues that NHTSA provides, but again, this is being recorded. So if the person starts talking about something weird while they're doing this test or does something else that um, may not necessarily be a clue for NHTSA, but could be some sort of sign of impairment. That could again be used against you in court. Yeah, because as we've discussed before, there are these elements of DWI, and, and one of them is you know, your level of intoxication. So a lot of people think, 
okay, if I'm below a 0.08, or if I show below a 0.08, then I'm automatically off the hook. It's not necessarily the case. Very important. Appreciable impairment is a way in which you can be found guilty for DWI, that you're so sufficiently impaired that it's not safe for you to be out on the road. So even if an officer doesn't do all these tests right, but you're doing, you know, as the accused individual, you're obviously can't stay balanced. You are all over the place, talking crazy. I mean, there's all these sorts of things. That could be an indication of appreciable impairment Absolutely. that could overcome the standard and actually show that, you know, potentially that you're guilty of DWI. Absolutely. So, you know, the other um, standardized field sobriety test that's most common is, is is that finger test that everybody talks about, <laughs> right? That is. That, that's called the horizontal gaze and nystagmus test. And this test is a little different than the first two because the horizontal gaze and nystagmus test takes um, a little more specialized training. It is um, a, a medical procedure on some level um, and used by doctors as well. And um, it's a test that uh, that is highly litigated in the sense that it's challenged and has there's a ton of case law coming out of the, coming out of this specific test but yeah because what it is you you are yeah. asking a law enforcement officer that has some hours of training mm -hmm. to do what is essentially a medical procedure and make a determination off of that versus like you mentioned doctors do this right um, how many years of training do doctors have a lot. for them to make a determination of, right. of nystagmus? And so it makes sense why it is so heavily litigated. And for a while in North Carolina, you actually had to be certified as an expert right. to even get this test in that's since been modified. It, it's sort of, and we'll get to that, it's sort of in between. There's, there's a part of the statute about expert testimony that deals with HGN, but it, it Again, it's it's um, it's relied upon heavily by courts and it's relied upon heavily by officers to to find probable cause. So that's why it's so heavily litigated. But just to get to what nystagmus is, nystagmus itself is the is the involuntary jerking of the eye. Um, and there, are, you know, uh, dozens of reasons that a person can exhibit nystagmus. But um, for this purpose, for the horizontal gaze and nystagmus test, it is a test designed um, that is supposed to show a person that, has, um, that is, has taken in either alcohol or some other central nervous system depressant that um, would give them, would make them show nystagmus. So essentially when an officer is giving this test, initially the officer has the person stand there um, with their arms by their side looking forward. Uh, they can't, they're not supposed to move their head. The officer does have to do some checks, some medical mm -hmm. checks and ask the person whether or not they're wearing contacts. Obviously they can observe whether they're wearing glasses or whether or not they have any other medical condition that would preclude them from the test. Um, once they get past that point, the officer needs to test to see um, whether the person has resting nystagmus, which means are, are, are their eyes uh, jerking involuntarily while they're just standing there which could be a sign of, um, of head trauma or some other uh, different issues that, that may not have to deal with impairment. Um, after that, um, uh, th they can begin that test. Um, the, the officers are really looking for three sort of clues, but they, we say six clues because 
um, there's three clues in each eye, essentially. Um, so the first one, you know, the officer will put a stimulus 12 to 15 inches from a person's face. Um, that can be a finger or a pen. Um, and they will ask that person to uh, not move their head, but just move their eyes and follow the stimulus. Does the end um, of a flashlight work? No, the end of a flashlight doesn't work. They're, they do a lot of times have the flashlight looking at a person's eye so that they can see um, the person's eye. So there is some, there, that, that is an issue. And sometimes it's litigated whether or not um, the person can be facing blue lights as well. But uh, once that test begins, um, there is a, we, we're not going to get into the weeds about a certain amount of time. There, there's a lot of different NHTSA standards that um, have to be followed. But essentially, the first clue they're looking for is what's called lack of smooth pursuit. And what that is, is when the officer um, begins to move the stimulus, um, is, there, is the person's eye, when they're tracking that stimulus, jerking involuntarily? And that's what nystagmus is. So that's the first clue they're looking for in each eye. The next clue they're looking for is called distinct and sustained nystagmus at maximum deviation. So what that means is that when the officer um, takes the stimulus and goes at maximum deviation, meaning that the person has to look at their furthest point to the stimulus, is there distinct and sustained nystagmus, meaning that the person's eye is jerking involuntarily at that maximum deviation um, in both eyes. And then the last one is the onset of nystagmus prior to 45 degrees, meaning that the more the, the what it's supposed to show is that the more impaired a person is on some CNS depressant, that um, prior to 45 degrees, the, the more quickly they will show nystagmus or involuntary jerking. So a lot of times this particular clue is used to show a higher level of impairment. So there are some times where you see a person that uh, may be at a level of 0.08 to 0.12, somewhere in there, that may exhibit four or six clues, and over you know, 0.13 or so exhibit um, this, these other two clues, which is a maximum deep, oh, I'm sorry, uh, onset of nystagmus prior to 45 degrees. And I know I just threw a lot at you, but those are the three clues. And, and as you can imagine, you know, this is what a person that's a law enforcement officer has to look for all in 80 or 90 seconds. So it's, it's, it is very, a very involved test. So once uh, an individual does these three initial field sobriety tests, oftentimes uh, a law enforcement officer will ask an individual to do a breath test. And this is a portable breath test on the side of the road. And this is such a hotly debated and talked about issue um, that a lot of people um, discuss because uh, a lot of people think that that one on the side of the road you, you have to do. And the thing is you, you've got a Fourth Amendment right, a Fifth Amendment right, and a Sixth Amendment right that you have the ability to assert. And wrapped up in all of that, um, you implied consent doesn't apply to a roadside breath test. In right. fact, the outcome of a roadside breath test, the specific number, is inadmissible in court. It cannot come into a hearing or uh, a trial. The reason why is because our courts have determined that it is only reliable to figure out the presence of alcohol 
it is not reliable enough for an actual determination of the level of alcohol. And so for that reason, an officer can testify to the fact of the fact that it was positive or negative for the presence of alcohol. But it, uh, an officer cannot testify to the actual numerical result that is inadmissible. And so that's the big difference between uh, the roadside test and the test after someone has been seized and they're doing that intoxilizer test down at mm -hmm. the station or the jail or whatever. Um, you know, we p tell people all the time, you know, we advise people, you know, it may not be in your best interest to do that roadside test. And you have the absolute right to say no, to not do it, just like you have the absolute right uh, to not do any of these field sobriety tests. Uh, they are, um, an officer is basically asking you to consent to these tests. And it's not something that you are compelled to do by any law, statute, case law, nothing uh, in the state of North Carolina. The only thing that you are compelled to do, and even then you can withdraw it, is to provide a blood, breath, or urine sample after you've been seized due to adequate probable cause for a DWI. So every single one of these field sobriety tests is you given another piece of evidence, another piece of information about uh, what you're being investigated for. And that's something that, you know, as just a fundamental part of the Bill of Rights, that, uh, the Greenwood Law Bill of Rights that we talk about is not doing law enforcement's job for them. Well, that's a way in which you're doing law enforcement's job for them by handing over all that information, making their job pretty easy mm -hmm. at that point. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, Harold, you've been a prosecutor. Uh, what are a couple examples of probable cause you've seen? Yeah, I mean, Again, this is a hotly litigated thing in court, um, these, mo these suppression motions, and a lot of times, as you can imagine, we threw a lot at you, and there, you know, in, in practical times, there are bits and pieces of, you know, evidence that, uh, when taken in totality, lend a probable cause. So, for example, um, if a person is stopped for an expired registration, which means that wasn't bad driving or doesn't look like driving that would, um, mean that there's a DWI, um, but, and they don't do the, let's say they don't, they don't do the one leg stand, they don't do the walk and turn, but they have uh, six of six clues on HGN and no Alka sensor. So just HGN um, and no bad driving. That, it becomes, you know, I've seen that be enough with the odor of alcohol a lot of times, where they're coming from, what time of day or night it was, um, at night, um, that be enough to, to get right over um, on, on probable cause, especially if it's an officer like a state trooper or an officer on the DWI task force that has a lot of experience with HGN. Mm. Um, so, you know, it, it could, that, that would be a close, close margin, but that is an example of that. Um, you know, another Another example I've seen um, that wouldn't necessarily be probable cause, I've seen one where a person um, did have bad driving um, uh, and they were pulled over but refused every test. Um, and now refusal can, can be used um, as, as evidence of guilt, but 
that alone may not be enough to get a person to probable cause. So I've seen an instance where, where a person didn't do any standardized field sobriety tests, didn't do alka sensor, so all the person really, ha and, and also uh, uh, didn't really have a lot of speaking with the officer. And so all that r they really had was, um, was the odor of alcohol in the vehicle, um, but there was a passenger in that vehicle um, and, and the bad driving and that wasn't enough. There's actually some case law about having a passenger in the vehicle with the odor of alcohol mm -hmm. and how courts do look at that differently than having one person in yeah. the vehicle. But everyone out there, thank you for joining us for this uh, DWI series that we've done. Uh, we want you to know your rights, but also uh, bear in mind to stay safe. Um, you know, there's a lot of great services out there to prevent this from happening. So uh, Uber, Lyft, uh, keep them moving. Uh, but don't forget to join us next Sunday here on WTOB at uh, 10.30 a.m. Uh, as for another For the Record with Greenwood Law. And we're going to be discussing uh, driver's license issues and ways in which they can be suspended, revoked, and ways in which that can all be undone, potentially. Uh, so join us for that as we talk about a very important issue to try to get people back out on the road and help them out uh, to be productive people. So before we go, do not forget the Greenwood Law Bill of Rights. First, I will not represent myself in a court of law. Second, I will not do law enforcement's job for them. We talked about that earlier. Third, I will not make statements when stopped by law enforcement. Fourth, I will not consent to searches when asked by law enforcement. And fifth, I will not be my own star witness for the prosecution. Again, remember um, that it's not a crime to assert your rights and know them. Stay informed, stay safe. This is For the Record with Greenwood Law signing off.